Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. We are reaching the end of this wonderful letter. And uh, let me uh, invite you this morning to uh, engage your minds, engage your minds. It is easy to... um, let our minds just co- kind of go and wander around and think about lunch and, or just fall asleep with your eyes open. Um, but uh, I invite you to please uh, engage your minds and consider the words of the Lord this morning as we open the Bible. Verse 16 of Ephesians 6, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Let us ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, we are so dependent upon you for all things, and we pray that this morning the Holy Spirit will teach us. I pray, Lord, that Christ will be exalted above all things, and these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by drawing your attention to the words of a theologian of the past. Once in a while, I like to interact with things that have been said in the past. His name was Hermann Bavink, a Dutch theologian. I want to read a series of quotes that I found in a book he wrote titled, The Certainty of Faith. The Certainty of Faith. This is what Bavink said. And I quote, Doubt has become the sickness of our century, bringing with it a string of moral problems and plagues. Nowadays, many people take into account only what they can see. They deify matter, worship mammon, or glorify power. The number of those who still utter an undaunted testimony of their faith with joyful enthusiasm and complete certainty is comparatively small. Then Bavik continues, um, and then he tells us and makes the case that, quote, There is no more important question than the one concerning the ground of our faith, the certainty of our salvation, the rootedness of our hope in eternal life. What good is knowledge, power, fame, and honor if we cannot answer the question about our only comfort? And then Bobbing adds these very penetrating words, and I quote, in order to live comforted and die happily, We need certainty about the invisible and eternal things above. We must know what we are and where we are going. We must know that our personhood is more than a ripple in the ocean. That the moral battle stands far above the natural order. And that the highest and purest ideals of the souls are not illusions but reality. We must know how we can be liberated from the accusations of our conscience and from the weight of our sin. We must know that God is and that he is our God. We must be sure we are reconciled with him and can therefore approach death and judgment without terror. In all this, our greatest need is for certainty. In the deepest although often unconscious need of the human soul is certainty. And then interestingly, Bavink moves into a discussion on science, science. Why science? 
Because for the most part, science has been equated with certainty. Certainty. Plus, many within the scientific community have pitted faith and science against each other as though they are mutually exclusive. In other words, if you are a man of faith, you cannot be a man of science because faith is about things you cannot prove, while science is about things you can prove. It is facts. What are we to make of these claims? Well, here's what Bavink has to offer, and I quote, When confronted by life's deepest problems, science has often taken a stance that conflicts with the seriousness of these problems. Science is often content to characterize these questions as important for lesser men, for the unsophisticated, but of no significance to the scientific community. This belief, however, is nothing but a proud and vain illusion. Science may have a lot to offer our senses and our understanding, yet it leaves the heart unsatisfied. End quote. Why does Bavink say that? Because, and I quote, in the hour of suffering and in the face of death, what good comes from the conquest of nature, the blessings of civilization, the triumphs of science and the enjoyments of the arts? What good does it a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And then Baving brings his point home with tremendous force. And I quote, science is mistaken. If it passes by these serious problems of human life with an indifferent shrug, the consciousness, consciousness of good and evil, the awareness of sin, righteousness and judgments, the accusations of conscience, the fear of death, and the need for reconciliation are just as real as matter and energy. In fact, they are realities of tremendous import, for they rule the world and mankind, life and history. Science, says Bavink, may say what it wills about guilt and punishment, death and the afterlife, but it cannot ask us to hang eternity on a flimsy spider web when our highest interest, our eternal weal or woe is at stake. We must be satisfied with nothing less than infallible divine certainty. There must be no room for doubt, end quote. This morning, we are giving our thoughts to the all-important issue of faith. And I submit to you that when it comes to the fierce spiritual battle in which we are all engaged as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, few things hold greater weight than our understanding of faith as the shield as the shield. Now, I quoted Bavink extensively for this reason. I believe this theologian successfully and convincingly put his finger on one of the most critical points in this entire conversation. What is that? Faith is not a leap in the dark. Rather, faith is the only way to walk upon the road of certainty. Why? Because faith links us to the greatest reality in the whole universe. Nothing, brothers and sisters, nothing. Listen to this. Even if you are an unbeliever, I'm, I'm speaking the truth. Nothing in this universe is more certain than God. Nothing. 
but I will return to that thought at the end. For now, let us dive into our verse for this morning. I will highlight three important truths we see clearly revealed in this text concerning faith, and I will move from the general to the more specific. The first truth that I want you to to know and that I want to highlight from this verse is as follows. The pervasive influence of faith. It is the first thing we see in verse 16. Consider how Paul begins. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. In how many circumstances? In all, that's an easy question, huh? I'm helping you out this morning. In how many circumstances are we to take up the shield of faith? In all circumstances. In other words, no moment of your life should be outside the reach of faith. After all, we are called to walk by faith, meaning faith permeates every step you take. Consider, for example, the general scriptural teaching on faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11:6. Or consider this, for whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. That is Romans 14, 23. These are general statements regarding faith. And this is what I mean by the pervasive influence of faith. It touches every corner, every inch of our lives, which obviously means the following. Faith is not something you exercise on Sundays only. It is to be your way of life. I think it is safe to say That faith, for the most part, has been relegated to a secondary place in the world. And many have even tried to make a separation between that which is secular and that which is religious. And even though I don't think this one verse really solves, fully solves that debate, it does provide some very needed insight. And I want to highlight this one. Faith is not something you can simply turn off at any given point, as though it doesn't apply to certain circumstances of your life. Do you see what I mean here? When Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, he's clearly asking us to live our entire lives, our entire lives, every aspect of your life within the sphere of faith, regardless of what we may be going through at any given moment. Do you mean to say that uh, going to the grocery store, should be done in faith? Yeah. Yeah. That's what all circumstances mean. Right? Does that mean that my work ethic? Does that mean that my family relationships? Does that mean that my finances? Does that mean that my eating habits? My thought life? My voting And even my entertainment should be done within the context of faith? What do you think? Should we take up a a vote? What do you think it means? But isn't isn't it a, a bit much? Well, let me ask you this. My Christian friend, is there any area of your life over which God does not have absolute prerogative and authority? Can you mention one? One area of your life which God cannot touch, that belongs only and exclusively to you. Of course not. Then my Christian friend, everything about your life is ultimately a matter of faith. And yes, in all circumstances, you must take up the shield, therefore. And the first reason is because in all circumstances, we must walk by faith. Faith is pervasive. It reaches into every little corner of your life. Secondly, 
we must take up the shield of faith in all circumstances because as Christians, we live our lives within the context of ongoing spiritual battle. And this is in fact the immediate context of our verse for this morning. Thus, taking up the shield of faith in all circumstances must mean the following. Don't miss this point. Satan, the enemy of our souls, Satan is very active and he can use all circumstances. Do you realize that? Satan can use all circumstances, whether good or bad, joy or sadness, plentitude or scarcity, failure or success, peace or despair for our spiritual detriment. We need to realize this important aspect of satanic strategies. Let me try to explain a bit further. It is not unusual, for example, for Satan to use our joys, the joys in our lives, as an opportunity to promote in us a sense of sinful contentment in the passing pleasures of this world and turn our eyes away from our joy in the Lord. Has that ever happened to you? Am I the only one? This is how he tempted Israel. If you think about it, Israel's ongoing sin was their failure to rejoice in their identity as the people of God chosen by God and created for special communion with God. What did they do instead? Well, instead we find the people of Israel complaining about things such as food. It's a big deal. So much so that the meat that they were able to eat while being slaves in Egypt made them long to return to slavery rather than enjoying the miraculous manna provided by the Lord. In other words, many of the Israelites were thinking like this. I guess we were fine in Egypt without God. At least we had meat. Satan can tempt us to think that joy can be found apart from God. In fact, he can even seek to convince you that joy is found in sin. Think about it. Your success at work can be turned into an opportunity for pride. Your challenges in your family can be turned into opportunities for despair. Your ongoing exposure to the news and social media can be turned into an opportunity for fear and frustration. We must take up the shield of faith in all circumstances because all circumstances can be turned by the enemy into opportunities for sin. This is how he operates in all circumstances. You must keep your guard up. Well then, what is this shield of faith and how do we take it up? We'll cover that when we get to the third truth. For now, consider with me the second truth we see in this verse. Very important. Consider the proactive quality of faith. The proactive quality of faith. What does Paul say that we need to do? Take up. Take up. Do you realize that you never take anything up without intentionality? You never take anything up without intentionality. There is a proactive quality of faith. Faith is not just pervasive in the sense that it impacts all of life, but it is also proactive in the sense that it calls us to be continually exercising it. Whatever the shield of faith is, God's word tells us to intentionally take it up. From this, we can learn the following lesson. Consider this, faith involves a conscious act. Faith involves a conscious act. Faith is not something that happens by default. Therefore, in those times when we allow ourselves to be given to despair, 
to be given to pride, to be given to fear. We must remember that faith is a conscious act. We must remember that faith must be taken up because if you don't take it up, you are, as it were, defenseless. Consider this. The fact that the Bible calls us to take up the shield of faith must mean that we are prone to put it down, right? And that a conscious act is required for us to lift it up, to lift it up. Therefore, to ask the fearful, prideful, or despairing Christian the question, where is your faith? May sound like a simplistic question, almost like a cliche that doesn't help much. But my brothers and sisters, it is a critical question nonetheless. Where is your faith? And why are you walking as though you have none? It's a legitimate question. As you see the world you know falling apart, as you see the chaos, are you giving into fear and discouragement and despair? Then I have to ask you the question, where is your faith? Consider that question, my friend. Take it seriously. Now, this naturally leads us to the third truth. We saw first the, what? The pervasive nature of, of faith. And I always ask that. When I ask that question, I'm actually asking that question because I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> I have my notes, but uh, sometimes I, I forget. The pervasive nature of faith, right? <laughs> and then the proactive quality of faith. But third, the protective the protective nature of faith. Take up, Paul says, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And I just saw Brandon Mills. Hey, Brandon. Good morning. I have a question for you at the end, so don't leave without coming and see me. That's just a parenthesis, okay? I just saw him and I had to say it because I'm going to forget later. Faith, Paul says, is a shield Faith is a shield going by the analogy of the soldier, which Paul is employing here. This shield was normally very tall and very wide. It's not just a little circle thing. It's a very tall and very wide circle, which would have served as cover for most of the body. It even offered protection for the rest of the armor, the rest of the armor. In other words, for a Roman soldier, the shield was his first line of defense. From this, we learn that just by virtue of being the shield, faith occupies a very central place for us Christians. It is offered for protection. But please notice an important point here. We cannot miss the protection offered by the shield of faith. Listen to this is not against circumstances themselves. Do you realize that? But against Satan using circumstances against us. By creating opportunities for sin. In other words, we must clarify that faith as the shield is not intended to be a protection from difficult circumstances, but as protection in our circumstances. Do you see the difference? What I mean is this faith may not keep you from having to endure an accident at work or in your car. 
but it can keep you from giving into sinful fear and anger when that actually happens. Faith may not keep you from having to endure oppression and persecution in this world, but it can keep you from giving into despair and hopelessness. Now, with that distinction in mind, let us then ask, what is faith? What kind of faith is Paul talking about? First of all, let me tell you what faith is not. Let me tell you what faith is not. Let me begin with the negative. I have heard unbelievers talk like this. You know, you encounter a person with a problem and a person, a well-intentioned person will come and say, what? Just have faith. Just have faith. What does that even mean? Right? It's always sort of with this sense of ambiguity. Just have faith. Faith used in this way has more in common with the psychological idea of positive thinking than with the biblical idea of faith. It was a pastor I should probably put that in quotes. It was a pastor and motivational speaker, Vincent, Norman Vincent Peel. Some of you have heard that name, Norman Vincent Peel, who wrote a title, who wrote a book title, The Power of Positive Thinking. I do not recommend it. Don't buy it. Now, if the title itself doesn't give you pretty much the biggest red flag. Maybe chapter one will do the trick, which he titled, Believe in Yourself. Believe in Yourself. Now, we'll stop right there. Although I will return to something he said that perfectly illustrates the dangers of a misplaced and misinformed view of faith. So then, what is true biblical faith? I will try to work this out in steps. I will answer this all-important question by briefly addressing Three essentials of faith, origins, object, and purpose. First, consider with me the origins of faith. Where does it come from? Paul has already answered that question in chapter 2, verse 8. Faith is a gift from God to his people, his elect, his church. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the what? It is the gift of God. Faith, then, is not our own doing which means that faith is not the product of autonomous human will operating by its own strength. Faith is first and foremost, a gift of divine grace that the Lord produces in us through the spirit as God's word goes forth. So when it comes to the origins, we say that faith is supernatural, supernatural. Now consider with me the object of true faith. What do I mean by the object of faith? If you were listening to uh, our sister playing the piano this morning, she played one of those hymns that has endured the test of time. And is a hymn that I like very much. It's titled, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. That's what I mean by the object of faith. The object is the place upon which faith finds its rest. True biblical faith has a specific object. It has a name. It is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Consider the words of the apostle John. In his first letter, he said this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. And then he explains what the faith is. 
Whoever is it that over, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So faith is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now that statement needs to be further explained. Listen to this. Faith is to believe in Jesus as revealed in God's word, not in movies, not in TV series, not in fictional books, but in scripture alone. Do you realize that nothing else is needed to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, some resources may be helpful, but you and I don't need go looking for better revelations of Jesus somewhere else. This is why when we come together on Sundays, our greatest desire should be to hear from God's word through his written word. So faith is trust in the sufficiency and the finality of divine revelation. For in this revelation, which is written and objective, Christ comes to us as the savior and Lord. And this is all we need. As the hymn I already mentioned says, my heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Faith. This is how one pastor defined it. He said, faith is being content in knowing Christ as revealed in scriptures without the need to seek him in any other way. So let me ask you this. Do you have faith? Well, here's the, here's the follow-up to the question. Are you content in this, in this written word? Are you content with it? Or are you always looking for different ways outside of scripture to try to get to know God? This is it. This is what faith is. It's contentment in the word of God. Movies and novels and any other such materials that seek to promote the knowledge of Jesus are therefore unnecessary at best, and they can be dangerous at worst. Do you want to know Jesus and grow in your faith? Then you must read the Bible. That's all you need. This is faith. We have looked at the origin and the object of faith. Now let us briefly consider the purpose of faith. Why faith? Why faith? Why is there such a thing known as faith? Because in God's perfect and good design, God has decreed that faith is the means by which we are united to Christ and all his benefits, all his benefits. Faith is God's way of bringing us into union with Christ so that we may receive all his benefits for all spiritual blessings are where in Christ not outside of Christ, but in Christ alone. At this point, I'd like to see if I can illustrate faith by drawing your attention to the history of Noah and the construction of the ark. Consider Hebrews eleven seven. It says, by faith, Noah, by what? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed the ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? Faith. So by faith and then faith. What does Noah teach us about faith? Much indeed. I want to highlight four elements, four elements from Noah's example. First, Noah believed God's warning concerning sin and judgment. Okay. Noah believed God's warning concerning sin and judgment. Second, Noah acted accordingly, even though his eyes could not see the reality of what God had told him. Third, 
Noah built the ark because he knew he needed it in order to escape what? Judgment and death. Fourth, Noah and his family went into the ark. That's quite the insight, huh? Noah and his family, they actually went into the ark when judgment through flooding finally came. Please notice with me that these four elements provide for us a very vivid and wonderful illustration of true biblical, evangelical, and saving faith. Please notice with me the first lesson we learned from Noah concerning faith. Faith involves believing God's word concerning sin and judgment. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that God will judge the world. Second lesson, second lesson, faith involves, listen to this, the inability to see. Faith involves the inability to see. What do I mean by that? Let me check my notes because I forgot what I meant by that. Jesus himself said this in John 20, verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet do what? Believe. Third lesson. Faith involves acting out of reverent fear of judgment. Why did Noah build the ark? Yes, he wanted to be obedient, of course. But more than that, he knew that without it, he would die too. What about the Israelites? Do you remember how they responded to God's command when they were freed from Egypt and the angel of death came? What did God tell the Israelites? Take blood, put it on the doorpost, and when I see the blood, death will go, will pass over you pass over you. What did they do? Exactly that. Why? Because without obeying, submitting themselves to God's word, they knew they would have died. They would have died. They understood that without submitting themselves to God's word, judgment would come to them too. A fourth and final lesson we learned from Noah, faith involves getting into the ark. Again, that's a it's quite the insight. Faith involves getting into the ark. In other words, faith involves appropriating God's provision for salvation when judgment comes. Now think with me about the elements involved in faith as illustrated by Noah and let us apply it to ourselves. Have you believed God's word concerning sin and judgment? Have you believed it? For instance, in Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 27, we read, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. You know what that is? That is God's word. Do you believe it? Noah heard and believed God's word. Do you believe it? Next question. For faith to be faith, it needs to rest upon that which is unseen. For when we see with our eyes, faith will no longer be needed. Be needed. So do you believe in the invisible realities of what, of which the word of God speaks, such as sin, hell, heaven, and judgment? These are invisible realities. None of us have seen, but faith requires that we cannot see them. Next question. Have you yourself experienced the reverent fear of Noah as at the thought of upcoming judgment? Have you ever been gripped 
by the reality of God's holiness and righteousness and wrath, which will be unleashed upon unbelievers. And have you realized that unless you find refuge, this judgment will fall upon you? Next question and final question. What do you think the question is? Have you, have you entered into the ark? Have you entered into the ark? Sounds like a strange question, doesn't it? Well, just like God provided Noah with the ark to save him from judgment, so too God has provided us with an ark to escape his final judgment. Who is the ark? It is Christ Jesus. Just like the ark was God's provision to Noah so that the waters of the flood would not overtake him. So Christ is God's provision to us so that the fury of his wrath does not destroy us. How, how does that work? Well, in Noah's ark, we see a picture of redemption. You see the ark took as it were the punishment for Noah. Think about this. The flood fell upon the ark within which Noah was safe on the cross. The judgment fell upon Christ so that those who believe in him might be saved. So the most critical question of your entire life, the single most important question about your entire life is this. Are you in Christ? Are you in the ark? If you're outside of Christ, guess what will happen to you? Judgment will fall on you. But if you are in the ark, the Lord Jesus Christ, judgment has already fallen on him. Have you entered the refuge from judgment where forgiveness and reconciliation is found that is faith. You must believe in him. There's one more lesson I want to highlight from Noah. The ark was the path into a brand new world. The ark was the path into a brand new world. Likewise, likewise, likewise Jesus is bringing us into a brand new world by the work of the spirit within us. In this new world, we are made to walk by faith. The people of God ought to be known as people of faith. Well, what does that mean? At its core, and as exemplified by the saints of old, faith is this. An all-encompassing dependence on God for all of life. An all-encompassing dependence on God for all of life. Now, let me tell you this. What is the flip side of that? What is the flip side of what I just said? The flip side is this. Faith also involves, listen to this, the recognition of wickedness, weakness, and need. Now, let's try to connect the dots. If this is faith, how is this the shield against the darts of Satan? In order to answer that question, we need to realize that the flaming darts of Satan are another reference to what? The schemes of Satan, right? The schemes of Satan. So let's try to be specific. If faith 
is the shield in the armor of God. Understood as an all-encompassing dependence on God for all of life, then obviously the flaming darts of Satan are a reference to his ongoing efforts to promote two primary evils, self-confidence and unbelief. And by the way, these two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. At times, one will produce the other. So I will bring this to a close by drawing your mind to a few final considerations. Let me speak first to the Christian. Here's the first thing that I want you to take home with you. Do not underestimate the dangers of self-confidence. Do not underestimate the dangers of self-confidence. I said I would come back to Norman Vincent Peale one more time, and this is painful to do, but I think it's important. Listen to this quote from his book. This is the first thing he says in chapter one, first paragraph. It didn't take me long to find it. And I quote, I want to make sure that this is a quote. I'm not saying this. And I quote, believe in yourself. Have faith in your abilities. Without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy. But self-confidence leads to self-realization and successful achievement. End quote. Now, even though this man called himself a reverend, and was involved with a reformed tradition, I can guarantee you he did not get those words from the Spirit of God. He got them from a different kind of spirit. As a Christian, you're not called to live your life by self-confidence, but by faith in God, which means utter and ongoing dependence on God for all of life. This is the shield of faith. You must take refuge in him for all aspects of your life. Some Christians are beginning to see glimpses of despair and fear and deep frustration in their lives as they witness their world collapse before their eyes. And it is true. This world and the world that many of you have known is coming to an end. It is coming to an end. What is more the church at large seems to be in utter chaos. But I can tell you that even though sadness and sorrow over these realities are legitimate, despair, fear, and hopelessness are not an option for Christians. They're not an option. You have never been, and you are not in control of any of these things to begin with. Your job, Christian, is to live by faith where you are in total dependence on God. Live by faith when you engage your neighbor in conversation. Let him know that your confidence is not in the government or policies, but on God. Live by faith in your family. Teach your children that the source of our joy and assurance has never been attached to anything in this world, but that the anchor of our faith remains unmovable for that anchor is God and Christ. Live by faith at work. Let your coworkers see that your identity is not found in the strength of our economy, but on Christ who lives forever. And for those who are discouraged 
or fearful over the current state of the church at large, I want you to ponder these words by Ian Murray. And I quote, at almost all times in history, the kingdom of God has appeared to be in confusion to the outward eye. It is faith in the promises of God, however, which provides a different perspective. The Holy Spirit assures us that infinite wisdom and love are presently directing the life of the church and that eternity will be witness to their success when a multitude which no man can number will be glorified with Christ. What we see now is but the beginning. End quote. Second word of encouragement to you, Christian, is this. Do not neglect the practice of prayer. Do not neglect the practice of prayer. You know why? Here's why. The number one evidence of a faith-filled life is a prayerful life. Why? Because prayer is the acknowledgement of our all-encompassing dependence on God for all of life. Let me put it in different words. Prayer is faith expressing itself through the recognition of weakness and utter dependence on the Lord. In an ultimate sense, then, lack of prayer is lack of faith. Show me your prayer life and I will show you your faith. And finally, I want to talk to the unbeliever in the room. There are always unbelievers in any church. Let me finish by calling you to two things. You must repent of your sin of unbelief. I want to make something very clear. I said a moment ago, nothing in the universe is more certain than God. Nothing. God has not left himself without a witness, according to Acts 17. Therefore, I have to tell you this morning, my unbelieving friend, that unbelief is not neutral. Is not neutral. Unbelief is evil. Unbelief is sin. Why? Because unbelief is the suppression of truth. This is what led humanity into an unending spiral of evil and sorrow. You are called to repent from unbelief. And secondly, the second call is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe the word of God. Believe the word of God. Trust Christ Jesus and receive his forgiveness. And I need to add one more thing. Do so today. Do so today. Repent of your unbelief and trust in Christ. Believe the word of God and you shall be saved. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the teaching of your scripture. I pray that you will redeem my own shortcomings as I presented these truths. But I thank you, Father, that ultimately our salvation and our sanctification does not depend on my abilities, but it is your work. And in this, Father, I take confidence that the Holy Spirit can use what was spoken today to bring about the light of salvation in Christ and further sanctification within us. I pray, Lord, that you will take this word and multiply its fruits within each one of us. And we thank you for the certainty of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these things we pray in his name. Amen.